Ambreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired. This week, beliefs about race, religion, and voting rights draw our attention to Texas. Later in the show, we get into the dramatic events that unfolded in Austin. We'll hear from B. Moreland, a Presbyterian lay leader and the executive director of Texas Impact, a multi-faith state network. They're expecting a 1,000 faithful on July 19th to stand on the steps of the Texas state capitol rallying, Let My People Vote. That's exactly one month after the first federal holiday commemorating Juneteenth National Independence Day. Now, if you think you heard a play on the popular rallying cry found in the book of Exodus, you're not wrong. Texas Impact, the NAACP, and LULAC, the oldest civil rights organization of Latin American citizens, are invoking the liberation story from the book of Exodus, recounting Moses and Aaron pleading with the Pharaoh to release the enslaved Israelites. Linking Juneteenth, Exodus, and the present-day legislative battle over voting access is no coincidence, according to Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and author Annette Gordon-Reed. In her new book, On Juneteenth, she questions the dominant caricatures and events that we associate with Texas, challenging readers to ask which ones are missing and why. The series of essays intertwine two narratives. One explains how laws and social norms are used to preserve racial hierarchies alongside another, her own exceptional story, as an African-American girl who comes of age in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education. While it is short and easy to read, On Juneteenth left me acutely aware of the many illusions I have about the Lone Star State. Let's get to my conversation. Annette Gordon-Reed, it is a pleasure to have you on the program. I am a fan of your work. Happy to be here. My first question is, why this book now? And why the choice to bring yourself into it? Well, um, my editor at Live Right, Robert Weil, Bob Weil, has been after me for a while to do a book about Texas. But we had in mind a big book about Texas, where I would talk about the history of Texas, maybe the development of slavery. And I might introduce it by talking about my family to some degree but then go off into the history. And this past year, I did an essay for The New Yorker about Juneteenth, about the holiday, and celebrating it as a child and what it meant. And some months before that, I had done a book review for The New York Review of Books, of five books about Texas, five history books about Texas, and one book of essays, Larry McMurtry, talking about Texas, So Texas was kind of on my mind uh, this past year. And then when the pandemic struck and Harvard went virtual, I decided to remain here in New York with my husband because there was no point in going down to Cambridge and be by myself and do classes from from my apartment there. So I stayed here in New York and I began to think about, well, being in that situation made you think about life and death, as we all did at that. We were part of that uh, part of that moment. And I thought about my parents, and I wondered how they would have taken this situation, how they would have responded to it. And the more I thought about them, I missed them. And Bob, after my essay came out, and actually before he had read the essay in The New Yorker, suggested that I might do a book about Texas, but it would be a short book about Texas. And I decided that I would do that, but I would do it by introducing my family, as you said, introducing myself into the narrative as a way of opening up the discussion about Texas. I really wanted to have the experience of thinking about my mother and my father who are no longer living, thinking about our lives together and accomplishing being close to them while I also explained this state that was on my mind because of the review that I had done. And because since I've been up here for many years now, 
I've been often put in the position of having to explain Texas. People say, well, what's going on down there? Why are people this way or doing this, that, or the other thing? So I thought that the book, as I conceived it, would be able to achieve those two goals, playing to nostalgia, thinking about my parents, and also talking about Texas. So it, it is a departure for me. This is not typically what I do. I'm more detached in my other writings of history. I'm outside of the story in a way. I might talk about myself in the introduction, but once I get into the story, to the history, I, I move away from it as much as I can. But I also thought that this would be a way of reaching a larger audience to talk not just to adults, but I really want this to be the kind of book that teenagers, young people could pick up and perhaps identify with a narrator who is being open about herself and her, her life and how, you know, to some degree, we're all a part of history. We could all tell the histories of our times by talking about things that happened in our lives. And so I wanted it to be accessible to lots of people. And I know memoir, I have to confess, has not been, you know, one of my favorite genres. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> yet I, here we are. Yeah, but here we are. Exactly. And I, I try to deal with some of the problems I have with the form by talking about myself as little as possible. I mean, I mentioned my mother and father's names yeah. and a handful of other people. But I thought that the more I went into like a family genealogy and family tree and talking to everybody, then it would become more memoir than history. And I wanted a particular balance. And I thought that by being present, but not too present, uh, would help me maintain that, that balance between mm. memoir and actual history. As a historian, as a professor, do you feel that there's a pressure to be quote-unquote, objective and remove the potential subjectivity that a person brings when they identify with the subject that they're teaching or talking about? Well, yeah, I think we can't be totally objective, but the thinking is that we should strive to be objective um, so that you can allow the information that you're finding to take you where you need to go rather than having a preset understanding about how things should work out and and that, you know, to see people working, sometimes working against the material in favor of their preferences. Hmm. So, yeah, there is that notion that you should try. You, we, we all know you can't have total objectivity, but you should not be sub substituting your desires and your wishes um, in, and placing them on the people you're writing about, mm -hmm. on the circumstances you're writing about. Yeah, so th that's definitely there. When you're writing a memoir and you, you, the parts that are about you, these are my impressions, you know, and they can't be wrong in that sense. I mean, I can be wrong about factual things, but when I'm talking about my feelings, you know, how my experiences, how they affected me, there's, there's some freedom in that too, that you don't have to end note that you know, yeah. the way you do other kinds of things. Yeah. As a professor, as a woman, as an African-American in the academy, do you find you encounter history presented as objective that in fact is more subjective or selective in the narratives that are included? Well, yes, uh, I, I have seen that. That's what my first book really is about. Mm. Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings in American Controversy, it was going through and seeing the way historians who were writing about the story of Jefferson and Hemings had preferences about the answer to that question, whether or not they had children. And it led them to ignore evidence, to accept evidence that was less than supportable coming into the matter when you're dealing with a topic that was very touchy for people and meant a lot to folks. I mean, that's why history is an art. It's not a science. There's no magic formula. And sometimes you, you hit the right balance and sometimes you tip over, but it's the, it's the attempt and the good faith attempt that I think that people, people respond to. 
your book arrives at a time when we now have a federal holiday for the first time before July 4th, commemorating the events of what happened on Juneteenth. In the opening chapters of your book, before you get to those events in Galveston, you lay out this backstory about Texas. Can I ask you just to share a little bit of that backstory? When you encounter someone who says, explain Texas to me, (laughs) what do you say? Well, what I think it's really important for people to understand is that Texas is part of the Southwest. And the emphasis has been on the Western part of it. When you think of Texas, you think of cowboys. I did a language study program in France when I was in college. I lived with a family and they knew I was from Texas and they had an understanding about what Texas was about. It was about the desert in a way. It was about, you know, cattle. And I think that that's the kind of predominant image that people have of the place when in fact the southern part of Texas is incredibly important to the formation of the state and to the culture of the state today. Texas was a slave society. Uh, Stephen F. Austin, from the very beginning, understood that slavery was going to be critical to the enterprise because the people he was bringing over from Georgia, Alabama, and the other states came with the expectation that their property rights in enslaved people would be protected. And Austin says, if people came to Texas without the institution of slavery, they could expect to be poor for a very long time because, you know, it was backbreaking work in felling trees and turning East Texas into a part of the cotton empire, which is what they wanted to do. So most people, as a matter of fact, have lived in the eastern part of Texas, which is the Old South. It's very much like the Old South. And so I would tell people that a lot of the things that are coming out of Texas, these are racial questions that grow out of the racial hierarchy that was created by the institution of slavery. And that continued even after slavery was ended, even after Juneteenth, 1865, when slavery uh, ended in Texas, the question of Black citizenship and Black voting was controversial among many whites and has been something that has that they've been fighting uh, since that time period. And it's interesting that here we are in 2021 dealing with the same kind of issues. Once you understand that this is not about cowboys and oil men, as exemplified in the movie Giant, which I'm sure many people have heard of if they haven't seen. That tells a narrative about the, in the beginning, Texas was a place of the cattle rancher and cattlemen and cowboys. And then uh, they were challenged by the oil men, the people who struck oil. And then the two of them come together when oil is discovered on the land of the cattle ranchers. So they become one society, but they leave out the plantation owner. A land of infinite variety and violent contrasts. A land where today's ranch hand can become tomorrow's multimillionaire. They leave out the kind of people who came over with Stephen F. Austin and created Texas as part of a cotton empire, growing cotton and sugar cane and other crops. My ancestors on both sides of my family were brought from other parts of the Deep South into Texas. My mother's family on one side, I can trace back to the 1820s in Texas, before Texas is a republic, and certainly before it becomes a state. And my father's side, at least the 1860s. And their ancestors came from these other deep Southern places uh, to you know, recreate the slave society there. It's really important for people to understand that because you understand the racial mores and the political life of the place. 
You describe in the book the events that led up to Juneteenth, but you actually spend a little bit more time, at least in my read, on the way that the society and the culture used extrajudicial means and other mechanisms to keep that hierarchy in place. And you describe the role that people play who aren't necessarily named, like judges and lawyers and um, and school teachers. There are different roles that people play in reinforcing and supporting the social mores that are an extension of that racial hierarchy. When you look at the events around this year's Juneteenth celebration, do you feel like they told a full story of what Juneteenth means and and what happens even after you have a legal proclamation? Mm-hmm. Well, I think Black Texans understand this very well because We have been celebrating this holiday since 1866. The first anniversary after 1865 kicked off these celebrations that have gone on and on. And they're typically, when you have them in public places, there are speeches that are given, there's music and so forth. There's an educational component to it. And I think Black Texans understand that even though there was great joy at hearing the news that enslaved people would no longer be in slavery, would never be treated as property in the way they were before. They knew they were in for a struggle. (laughs) They were amidst a group of people who were still very hostile to them and were hostile to the idea of incorporating them into the society on an equal basis. I've used the phrase hope amid hostility that Just because chattel slavery ended, it did not end the racial hierarchy. The culture of the place, the culture of of education, of voting, of social life, all of those kinds of things were still geared towards maintaining this hierarchy. And it's been a fight ever since then. So it was it's a hopeful story in lots of ways. But I'm hoping that people will, as the years go on have more of an opportunity to reflect on the ways in which it was still going to be an amazing struggle, even after the end of slavery. There are growing efforts to update social studies and U.S. history books to more accurately reflect the events that surrounded chattel slavery, Reconstruction, and the era of Jim and Jane Crow in the United States. And that's been accompanied by a growing number of attacks, specifically on social studies and U.S. history teachers. How do you respond? Well, you know, I think there's a lot there's a lot going on with this. There's a concern that when you talk about what actually happened that young people will feel bad about it. <laughs> and, you know, they should. <laughs> you know, it's impossible to read stories about people who had their families taken from them. You know, mothers separated from children and husbands separated from wives. It was, a, it was a tragic situation, but it happened. And you have to talk about what happened in the past. History is not just the fun things that happened or the good things that happened. And that has to be put forth. So I think that there's a concern about a notion that this will make people unpatriotic the feelings of white children are, you know, a paramount here saying that, you know, we don't want them to feel bad about things that their great great grandparents may have done. Well, you know, I, I don't know what to say about that because those things happened <laughs> and you have to talk about them. And it's pretty much saying as well that the feelings of black children don't matter. Mm. So that if you're a black child and you know that your ancestors were enslaved, you're not supposed to talk about that because you will make your white classmates feel bad. Um, that's that doesn't work. <laughs> you know that doesn't that doesn't make sense. If if things happen, you have to talk about them. Talk about them in an age appropriate way. I mean, as we do everything, the way we present matters to children, but they have to be discussed. There are people who don't believe or suggest that the situation that African Americans are in 
the sort of inequality that exists, that this is all our own making. And if you talk about the past and you talk about the ways in which society organized to stop Blacks from advancing, it supports the idea that you know, we've been up against it, that we've been fighting against. We, we're not, it's not a level playing field. That abstract notion that there are social constructions is something a lot of people are struggling to understand. And if that is, in fact, the case, what does it mean about how we go forward? Yeah, well, I mean, individual character, but I think it's a bit more than that with African-American people. It's, a, it's an indictment of African-American culture that it is something wrong with us as a people that that explains why we haven't done things. You know, people build up Greenwood, a, a nice uh, town mm. uh, with doctors and lawyers. Mm-hmm. And then when somebody allegedly does something wrong and, and there's no real evidence that he does anything wrong, people use that as an excuse to burn it down. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're, like you're referring to the Tulsa race. Tulsa, yeah, the Tulsa mm-hmm. thing. And things like that have happened, you know, across the South. Not, Tulsa was just one uh, example of that kind of thing. Yes, but you're right. There's this notion that it's about individual merit or the merit of a race of people and that African-Americans are an inferior race. And what has happened here is that through no fault of whites, whites have not done anything to blacks. It's just their own uh, laziness that's caused the problem. But if you talk about history and you talk about segregation, you talk about lynching, all of those kinds of things, you understand that there was a concerted effort, in fact, to keep African-American people down. Where does religion come into the story? Well, um, I suppose it comes into the story among African-Americans because many Black people, most Black people have used religion as a coping mechanism for them during slavery and after slavery as a way of maintaining a sense of faith that things would get better. So I think people in the, in the black community, many of them have been buoyed by their religious beliefs uh, from the very, very beginning. And certainly religious figures have been more traditionally the leaders in African-American communities. You described Texas as a promised land to Stephen Austin using almost biblical language. And I'm struck by how the language of liberation and freedom was understood by two different communities in very different ways. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was, there was a black church and there was a white church. And in the white church, it was eventually, uh, it wasn't always this way, but certainly the pro-slavery ideology in the South was very much tied to uh, religion. I, I remember going through a diary of one of Thomas Jefferson's grandsons who's going through the Bible and finding references to slavery as a way of justifying the existence of, uh, of the institution of slavery. Now, that's something Jefferson would never, never have done uh, in that generation of people. But certainly by the, the time that we're talking about with Juneteenth, these people are the heirs of the Second Great Awakening. And in the South, that tied very much into pro-slavery ideology. And of course, in the North, they went the opposite way. White abolitionists saw in Christianity uh, a call for abolition, the liberation of African-American people. So a lot of it seems to be people using religion as, as it happens to suit their, their particular, maybe earthly <laughs> desires, uh, uh, answers to things uh, using religion to, to buttress their views about stuff. So all these people are claiming from the same Bible, um, claiming answers about the, the nature of or the, the rightness or wrongness of slavery and coming to different conclusions about it. Annette Gordon-Reed is the Carl M. Loeb University professor at Harvard. She's an award-winning author of several books, including The Hemmings of Monticello, An American Family, for which she earned a Pulitzer Prize in History and the National Book Award. She is also the past president of the Society for Historians of the Early American Republic. 
She is the current president of the Ames Foundation and, over her career, has received many honors, including a Guggenheim Fellowship in the Humanities, a MacArthur Fellowship, the National Humanities Medal, and the National Book Award. Coming up, we pivot from the history to the present day. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. We'll be back after this short break. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan, and if you're just joining this week, we're taking a closer look at faith, race, and voting in Texas. We're now going to turn our attention to what's been happening in Austin, the state capital, where Governor Greg Abbott on July 8th called a special session of the Texas legislature to take up a series of issues, including controversial voting rights bills, Senate Bill 1 and House Bill 3. Members, in accordance with the proclamation of the Honorable Greg Abbott, Governor of Texas, I call the House Representatives of the 87th Legislature first call session to order. Members, please register. A quorum is present. The House and Gallery, please rise for the invocation. Let's take a listen to some of the exchanges between lawmakers and witnesses during the marathon committee hearings. I come before you as a Texan that I would like to say we all share much in common. And I'm very concerned about where we are going in our state. It is clear that the legislation before you is anti-black and anti-brown. Has there been a disparate impact study done to determine the impact it has on minority voters? On the face of it, it could be race neutral. The question becomes whether or not in the application of it, whether it has a disparate impact on the Well, Senator, I I don't know of any study. I know throughout the process, as objections have been raised based on the impact of different communities, there's been a debate. And in many times, provisions have been removed or have been amended to address those concerns. There will be some matters that people just disagree over. Some of the things in the bill in reference to disable the community are really uh, pretty shocking and disappointing, they would actually be included in a piece of legislation. People with disability require a little additional support. And for me, that might look like um, being able to use a, in my second election that I voted in, I voted by mail, I submitted my signature, which unfortunately is never exactly the same, and my ballot was discounted because of my signature. 
I think that what's occurring here with poll watchers is really disappointing because the poll watchers are empowered to such an extent they become overseers like on a plantation and they're sent out more to watch and see what the slaves are doing on the plantation. Well, let me give you some information. Yes, ma'am. I had a poll watcher come and stand behind me in an African-American area and Hispanic area. When they send poll watchers to our areas, they always send people that look like the Proud Boys into our communities. And they walk behind you and look just like they're going to kick your rear end if you just move out of place and they make you nervous. And this particular lady came and she stood behind me. And I politely turned around and asked her, what did she want? And she looked at me and I looked at her and I stood my ground because I didn't think that she needed to come and stand behind me while I cast my vote. Number one, I could read. I didn't have any need for assistance and I definitely didn't need her to come stand near me. And what she was trying to do, that she had been intimidating those African-American persons and those Hispanic-American persons coming into that precinct trying to cast their vote by the mere presence of her nationality, her ethnicity, Anglo, looking mean, you know. In my district, House District 105, which is Irving and Grand Prairie, we had voter intimidation too, except in my race, it happened out on the parking lot. We actually had an operatives of the opposing candidate who was running people's license plates and then telling them, I know where you live. You said there's a trade-off between having those eyes and ears and those poll watchers, and I applaud you for training people and giving them a quiz and making sure they know the law. But here's the problem with this legislation that I find. It's there's also a trade-off, disenfranchising people like that young lady that was in the wheelchair or other people who are blind or other people who may have difficulty. Do we pay a price by passing laws that may disenfranchise those who may find it as easy as you and I to go vote? I appreciate uh, all the members uh, and our witnesses' attention to the important testimony that we've heard today. As stated at the beginning of the hearing, we're in a special session and we're operating, as you all know, on a very compressed timeline. Uh, it is my intent to take a vote on reporting House Bill 3 at this time. The chair moves that House Bill 3 be reported favorably to the full House with a recommendation to pass and be printed and sent to the general calendar. Clerk will call the roll. Chairman Ashby? Aye. Vice Chair Thompson? No. Busey? Lardy, Garen, Jaton, Johnson, no, Flick, Landgraf, Lozano, Longoria, Moody, Niave, Nay, Shaheen, White, yes. Members, there being nine ayes and five nays, the motion prevails. That hearing culminated with a straight party line vote, sending House Bill 3 to the clerk of the chamber to be put on the House calendar for a full vote. The clips you just heard are part of a longer video produced by Texas Impact. That's an interfaith public policy organization that describes itself as nonpartisan. It's the oldest organization of its kind in the state of Texas, founded back in 1973 in the wake of a major corruption scandal. That shook Texas to its core. The goal of Texas Impact is to hold lawmakers accountable and to create a way for people of faith and goodwill to participate and engage in the legislative process. So when Governor Abbott called that special session be Moorhead, Texas Impact's executive director, she was paying attention. Soon after the vote, she and her colleagues pulled together clips to create the video to bring members up to speed. They released it on Monday morning during their podcast, Weekly Witness. Moorhead understands how complicated state politics can be to follow. She worked for nearly a decade in state government before joining the organization. She was a senior fiscal policy analyst for the Comptroller, a position she credits with helping her understand how important decisions get made. In that role, I got to learn about all kinds of public policy issues and impacts. I was able to get really good background on how our state makes policy. Moorhead uses that policy experience to analyze and translate for her members what happened over the weekend. At the end of the testimony, the most important thing to know is instead of saying, my goodness, we've had a waltz across Texas, haven't we? 
We've heard from people from every corner of the state. We should take a few days, perhaps, to go through that testimony and see if we can't address some of these concerns. Instead of saying that, he said, the clerk will call the roll. And it passed on party lines. The following day, a group of Democratic lawmakers from Texas boarded a plane for Washington, D.C. Now, this was not the first time they had done this to prevent a quorum in the House during the special session. But it certainly shifted national attention and the national conversation about voting. I'm going to tell you why I'm up here. I'm not up here to take a vacation in Washington, D.C., When I look at the African-American Museum, I thought about the struggle of my people fought in this country to get the right to vote. And that right is sacred to my constituents that I represent back in Houston, Texas. I'm not going to be a hostage that my constituents' right will be stripped from them. We have fought too long and too hard in this country. And there was a Texan called President Lyndon B. Johnson, August the 6th of 1965 that made sure that we had the right to vote and those rights was not going to be infringed upon. Este grupo de legisladores que representan cada rincón del estado de Texas necesitaban salir desde el principio para proteger el derecho de voto de todos texanos. No importa si eres hispano, afroamericano, anglosajón, republicano, demócrata, católico o protestante. Nosotros teníamos que salir para proteger el voto. El gobernador Abbott ha intentado... in D.C., our nation's capital, because we want to protect the civil right to vote for millions of Texans. Anybody in the state of Texas who needs to exercise the right to vote should do so freely. And we are not going to buckle to the big lie in the state of Texas. We were quite literally forced to move and leave the state of Texas. And we can't stay here indefinitely. That's why we need Congress to act now and pass the For the People Act. For months, civil rights and faith groups have been urging the Biden-Harris administration to do more on federal voting rights. Earlier this week, President Biden signaled that he was listening. On Tuesday... President Biden shifted attention from his legislative priority, the infrastructure bill, to addressing the infrastructure of our democracy in a passionate speech delivered in the symbolic city of Philadelphia at the National Constitution Center. He issued what many described as a moral clarion call to congressional leaders to make voting access a priority, especially in the face of state actions. And he called out Texas. Texas, for example, Republican-led state legislature wants to allow partisan poll watchers to intimidate voters and imperil and impartial poll workers. They want voters to dive further and be able to be in a position where they wonder who's watching them and intimidating them, to wait longer to vote, to drive a hell of a lot long, excuse me, a long way to get to vote. They want to make it so hard and inconvenient that they hope people Don't vote at all. That's what this is about. Jim Crow assault is real. It's unrelenting. And we're going to challenge it vigorously. Did it work? And how did that message land in the Lone Star State? I think it probably plays in Texas about like it did in 1964. Coming up, B. Moorhead, Executive Director of the nonpartisan interfaith organization, Texas Impact. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. We'll be back after this short break. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. This week, we're talking about Texas voting rights and the response of the faith community. Before the break, B. Moorhead, executive director who leads Texas Impact, a nonpartisan statewide network of faith leaders engaged in public policy, described her reaction to President Biden's speech. 
the polarization, and how her organization is responding. Let's get back to our conversation. B, before we took a break, you were just describing the strategy that legislative leaders took in Texas that amounted to 48 hours of nonstop public hearings in two chambers and then a roll call vote. There was a straight party line vote in which the controversial bill was sent to the House calendar to be scheduled for a full vote in the House. I want to start by asking you to describe the feeling among your members and the response that you're hearing. It's hard to convince people in local communities that their concerns are being listened to when that's the outcome at the Capitol. What I hear you saying is that the net result was an erosion of trust. That's exactly right. The fact that this has happened is a graphic example of how damaged and fragile the relations are among the body that's responsible for making policies that impact the health and welfare of 30 million Texans. We can't afford this to continue as a state. So our organization joins with many others and with leaders from all sides calling on all of the parties to hit a hard reset. What does that mean to reset? Lawmakers need to set aside highly politicized, amplified issues and focus on addressing long-term structural policy issues like education, healthcare, and energy. Those are the issues that impact the well-being of everyday Texans. But putting those issues on the call for the special session, but making them subordinate to a partisan election bill, set the table for what was going to be a very unhappy family dinner. And we're all seeing the results play out in a very public way on the national media, which doesn't do anything to help the millions of people in the state who actually need services and programs. And it doesn't do anything to help the officials who are called to serve those people. Can you describe the religious landscape of Texas today? The myth that Texas is a white Christian state is just simply not true. People have an idea that they understand Texas is the buckle in the Bible belt, people like to say. Here's the reality. Texas is one of the most religiously diverse states in the country. Houston, Texas and and the Houston area is the most religiously diverse big city in the United States. But it's not just Houston. There are mosques, synagogues, temples, house churches, and beyond all over the state. In rural East Texas, in far West Texas, there are Mennonites in the Rio Grande Valley. There are Sikhs in the Gulf Coast. Every one of our voices and every one of our perspectives is equally of worth in the public square when we come together to decide how we're going to live together. How informed is the faith community about the processes that the legislature is seeking to change with these bills? The answer is highly informed. And the reason is that once you get below the level of national and state partisan politics and you move into the realm of on-the-ground implementation, in local communities across the state, the people who are doing the day-to-day work of registering voters and finding out if people need particular help and serving as election judges and serving as vote counters, the people who count the ballots in the central counting station, all of those people are attached to their local faith communities. They are part of the local civic infrastructure that in a local community serving with the election judges of the opposing party 
are the same people who serve together with those people in the other party at the food bank, at the homeless shelter, in the park cleanup day. They have real relationships with each other and they know what it takes to make the election work for everybody in the community. When Senator Springer was describing what it takes for people in his rural district to vote, that's not something that the people in my central Austin neighborhood are very familiar with. The people in my neighborhood mostly probably could walk or certainly ride their bike to their polling place. In Senator Springer's district, he described people who have to drive hours to get to a polling place. His people are the expert on what their circumstances are. Historian Annette Gordon-Reed, who just wrote on Juneteenth, spoke with her and she described this as, you cannot understand the voting rights debate in Texas without understanding Texas history. Do faith leaders see this through that historical lens? Very much so. Very much so. We know that we have tough history in Texas. People of all faiths don't need to sugarcoat things. That's not what faith is about. It's about honestly discussing things that are painful and finding common ground. So people of faith will not have the luxury of just watching the political drama unfold. What actions are you planning? What's What are the next steps for your organization? So we're having an event on Sunday and Monday. We're having a two-day event. It's called Let My People Vote. How many people are you expecting to show up? I mean, I'm probably going to say 500. On Monday morning, the Texas League of Women Voters, in partnership with some county election officials, is doing a training that we're calling Make It Work. Our perspective is no matter what happens in this legislative session, we still have three statewide elections coming up in the next 16 months, and they have to happen. So people of faith have to get prepared to help administer those local elections. We'll have that training in the morning, then the rally. We are co-sponsoring a rally with the NAACP, the League of Women Voters, and Texas LULAC. What does Texas LULAC stand for? The League of United Latin American Citizens. So three nationally based organizations with long historic ties to faith communities across the country. I'll tell you this, none of our members, not Texas Impact's constituency, not the constituencies of those organizations, none of them want to go stand on the steps of the Texas Capitol in the hot sun in the middle of July to listen to speakers talk about anything. The reason that they will come, the reason that we'll get a lot, we got buses of people coming from all corners of the state is because they don't feel like there's any other way to get lawmakers' attention. The community that you serve has things they want to tell you, all of the people, not just the few who have figured out how to be the squeaky wheel. And then we'll have people visit legislative offices. And of course, most of the Democrats probably won't be there, but they'll go see everybody else and they will bear this message. Hit a reset. This this is not supposed to be this kind of partisan issue. Mm. Senator Judith Zaffarini, who is a longtime Texas leader from Laredo, says a famous quote, Hablando se entiende la gente. Talking together is how people come to understand each other. Is there enough talking happening? No. Did you watch President Biden or hear President Biden's speech from Philadelphia? I heard some of it, yes. What was your reaction to his prioritizing federal voting rights legislation? How does that play in Texas? I think it probably plays in Texas about like it did in 1964. What President Biden said in Philadelphia 
is no less true than what Lyndon Johnson said in 1964. And it's no less antagonistic to the South. There's no question that voting rights, the most fundamental right in our country, will continue to be a polarizing issue in the South, in Texas. So do I think he's right to center federal voting rights? Absolutely. Do I think it's going to make my job easier? Probably not. After President Biden's speech, there was a lot of concern and analysis about the tone he struck, not just centering voting rights, but making the case that the country is in a precarious place and what many describe as a potential civil breakdown. What do you see? What do you hear? A pastor I set a lot of store by gave a sermon one time. When she compared the kind of conflict that we have in the public square to a couple fighting. And she said, you can see a couple fighting and you can get an idea of whether they are fighting to make up or fighting to break up. And at some point in a fight, a couple has to decide, are we going to have this fight in a constructive way to make it work because we want to stay together? Or are we really fighting because we don't love each other anymore and we want to break up? I believe that we don't want to break up. I don't want to break up. I don't think any of our legislature wants to break up. I think We have to make that pivot as a country. B. Moorhead is the executive director of Texas Impact. It's an organization that was founded in 1973 in the wake of a major corruption scandal that shook Texas government to its core. The organization works to equip faith leaders and their congregations with education, information, opportunities, and outreach tools to engage with lawmakers on pressing public policy issues. To learn more, you can visit texasimpact.org. That's all for this week's episode. A special thanks to this week's producer, Kevin McCarthy, our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. You can head over to interfaithradio.org to explore our archives, subscribe to the newsletter, or learn more about us. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe. I hope you stay connected. And I hope to see you next week. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Khan.